uh, just a reminder, the mystery that we're dealing with in the book of Colossians is simple, and it's three steps. The mystery of Colossians is start with everything in Christ, uh, all in Christ. Everything that is necessary for us to be in favor with God is found packaged in a person, right? Everything in Christ, then Christ in Christ in us. So everything in Christ, all that we need for salvation, Christ in us, which is what is the, the impartation of salvation. I, I am saved because Christ lives in me. And therefore, I am acceptable before God on the basis of what Christ has accomplished and where he now dwells. A person who is not indwelt by the Spirit of Christ um, is not a believer. No matter how many uh, ceremonies and sacraments and laws that they obey and all of those things, they are not a follower. They are not a part of God's family unless they are indwelt by his Spirit. And remember this, all those who are indwelt by Christ's Spirit, no matter how many sacraments or or rules and regulations that they don't follow are still a part of his family. And so the, he does work with them, what we call sanctification, but we're not a part of God's family on the basis of what we have done. We're a part of God's family on the basis of what he has done. So everything in Christ, Christ in us, and then we are in the church. So the church is to be the manifestation of all of the things that Christ has revealed to us. We are, as a church body, to function in such a way as to express this mystery. So really, the church is, a, is the way in which the mystery of Christ is, becomes visible and becomes tangible. And that's what the Lord wants. And these New Testament truths are meant um, to not just present a mystery, but to really explain a mystery. It's not meant to be a mystery anymore. And that's the, the word in the Greek here in regards to mystery in this passage is mysterion. And it doesn't mean that it remains a mystery, but it more describes the unfolding of a mystery. So it's not a mystery anymore. And it's not supposed to be a mystery anymore to us. We're to live in understanding and in application to those truths. With that being said, this mystery is so important to our salvation and our eternal destiny that there's an enemy of it. There's an enemy. There's, there's those and, and he who would wish to attack this, this mystery and would keep us from understanding or comprehending this mystery. And that's where we go this morning. The title of this morning's message is Cautions Against Missing the Mystery. Cautions against missing the mystery. Satan is going to attack this mystery, and he's going to attack it by seeking to um, distort your focus, distract you from, from the mystery. And if he can distract you from the mystery, then he wins because you don't understand, comprehend, or live out the mystery. One of the tools of a magician... One of the tools that a magician uses, if any of you have ever done magic or seen a magic trick done, one of their, one of their I would say one of their best tools is the, the tool of misdirection. And they get you to focus on something that's going on over here while something else is going on over here, and that's where the magic trick is taking place. And they're, they're, they're performing a form of deception 
to which the performer, this is the actual definition of it, to perform a, a form of deception to which the performer uh, distracts the audience by focusing their attention on something going on over here while the true uh, events are going on over here. Misdirection is not only something that's used by um, magicians, but it's also used by politicians and entertainers as well. Uh, this, this misdirection might be actually more applicable to what we're talking about today because often politicians and entertainers um, will try to distract us from what is truly going on, the realities around us. They try to distract us from those things by misdirecting us. It's interesting, I, I don't remember where I read this, but there was an article that was written about how uh, Hollywood and entertainment becomes really, really prominent in the middle of the world going through great difficulties and trials, that people like to go to movies and they like to go to entertainment events when things are really bad. And, and the article was written with the context that the reason people do that is because they want to be distracted from reality. They want, they, they want that misdirection. They're looking for that misdirection. They love that misdirection because it takes their eyes off of what's really going on. You think about substances that people become addicted to, that uh, um, whether it be alcohol or drugs or other substances that they take because they cannot handle the reality of their world. So that substance will distract them from the reality of their problems. And in, in many ways, it's a misdirection. Uh, it's a, a tool to keep them from focusing on what is reality. And not just drugs and alcohol, but you have uh, sexual uh, pornography. You have lots of different things that are tools that are used to, to redirect us from the world that we live in. And then we don't have to deal with our problems Misdirection is also something that's used in a spiritual sense, which is what we're going to look at this morning. The Apostle Paul is, is not apologetic about this idea of misdirection by false teachers in Scripture. A matter of fact, as you read the New Testament and the Apostle Paul's letters and, and other of the epistles, really, really there isn't an epistle written in the New Testament that doesn't deal in some way with the fact that there are false teachers trying to misdirect us. They're trying to catch or put our attention over here to keep us from focusing on what's really going on over here. And if we allow that to take place spiritually, it, it, can, be, uh, it can be devastating to our walk. It can be devastating to our, our Christian life, but it also can be devastating in, as relates to a person coming to know Christ as their Savior. These misdirections are very, very real in the New Testament when we think about a misdirection, we shouldn't always, we shouldn't, our, our, our initial um, question that we shouldn't ask is, what is misdirecting us? But the initial question that we should ask is, what are we being misdirected from? In other words, what are we being distracted from? Yes, there are things that we're being distracted uh, with, and we'll look at those this morning biblically. But what are we being distracted from? What, what is the reason why? I think of this in the realm of politics in many ways. It's like there's a, oftentimes they'll, 
something will come up and it seems like every news station is focused on it and every media source is kind of uh, dealing with it and then you find out you know a year later that behind the scenes all this other stuff was going on and and this was really meant to just misdirect the the general public so that they didn't focus on on the reality the devil is is a master of misdirecting us from the truth to drawing us away from the truth and setting our hearts and our minds on things that are not true. And the Apostle Paul here in Colossians is going to warn the church of Colossae about this misdirection that's being used in their world to keep them from understanding this mystery, from understanding the Christ in us, everything in Christ in us in the church. Hebrews 13.9 says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which which have not benefited those devoted to them. Let's read our text together this morning. We're going to look then at four, I think, four things that will... Uh, will unfold and and I, and I hope my prayer is is that it will equip you as the body of Christ to be guarded against this misdirection that Satan is performing even today to keep our eyes off of what is what is reality okay there are two different realities that we all live in it's the reality of what you see and it's the reality of what is true and we live in the we we are tempted to live in the reality of what we see right but we're, we're meant to live in the reality of what is truth. And, they, and they're not the same. They're, they're at odds with each other. We think what we see is reality when Scripture says what is true reality is what you cannot see. That is why we walk by faith and not by sight. This is the conflict. The conflict is between what you can see and what the Lord says is true. Because the devil is the master of what you can see, isn't he? The scriptures tell us that he can transform himself into an angel of light. He's the master of manipulating things that you can see to present a reality that is not really a reality, that is not real. He's the master of that. What Christ gives us in his word is truth. And there's the truth of his word that contradicts the realities that Satan has created by what we can see. You think about all the things that contradict Christ's words today and say that, well, that can't be true because of this science or this whatever. The reality of it is, is that if, if the word of God says it, that's reality. And what, the, what Satan does is he manipulates all of these worldly human things that you see and touch and feel so that it seems like reality. And that's what he's dealing with here. That's what he's going to warn them against because this is a serious matter. So let me read. You guys join me. Um, Follow along verse 6 down to the end of the chapter. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So just notice very quickly that he talks about them being rooted. It means that their foundation is in what? Rooted and built up in the, in the faith, right? So our roots, the depths of our belief system are to be rooted in what we see or not see. What we not see, what we can't see. Our faith, 
our foundation, our roots are to go deep in what we can't see. They're to go deep in what we cannot see. He said we're to be rooted and building on that which we cannot see. We are rooted in the world that we live in today, and we are building daily on the things that we can see. We talk about the things that we can see. We murmur and complain because of things that we can see. We think about life based upon the things that we can see. We're, we're, we're building and rooted in what we can see and not builded and root, and building and rooted in that which we cannot see. The Apostle Paul says you need to be rooted and building on faith, which is that which you cannot see. And the world is a master of manipulating. We've got, we've got teenagers all throughout this building this morning. They, the devil is a master of manipulating teenagers and getting them to think that what they see is reality. And then he gets them to do and live in certain ways because that's their reality. The truth of the matter is, is that's not reality. The word of God is reality. And what we need is we need young people who embrace what God says in his word and not what Satan says through what we can see. And he warned back over when we were when Michael read Ephesians. It's like flee from the sex. You're going after sexual immorality. All you want is sensual pleasures. You're going after all of these things because you're just building on what you see, what you feel. Verse eight. It says, "See that see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental." Spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you have been circumcised with a circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festivals or new moons or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by their sensual minds, and not holding fast to the head. Notice this. Notice this. The sensual mind, where's the mind at? It's in your head, isn't it? So you're holding to your head instead of holding to the head. Right? So we're holding to our thinking versus holding to his thinking. Holding to our philosophies versus holding to his truth. Philippians 2 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. It is, it is his mind, it is his, he as the head that guides us. Just a side note there, that was free, it wasn't even in my notes. 
<laughs> Praise the Lord, right? <laughs> not, not holding fast to the head. Who, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together from its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh." Let me say this to you before we go any further. This is, this is not a licensed passage of Scripture. This is not a throw out the law of God passage of Scripture. Too many people take this text of Scripture and it's like, well, why do we live with don't taste and don't touch and don't do this and don't do that? Why do we, why does that, why is that, when the text says here that that's evil. It's not evil. It's not what the context is dealing with. This is understanding the mystery of Christ. This is not a license for us to go out and do whatever we want to do. It's not a taking all the, all the, the law away so that we can just live however we want to live. You, you go back to Ephesians, which is the parallel passage, and what does, he, what, does he, what does he rebuke them for? For being that way. For living in their sensual minds. So, with that, that, that's just an important truth. It's an important thought because this text is completely misrepresented by many scholars. And it's used as a liberating type of a text. It's not what it's meant to do. This is a, this is a gospel message. When you're dealing with the gospel, you better, not, you better not deal with you have to do this and you have to do that and you can't do this and you can't do that because the, the gospel is built on whom? It's built on Christ. There's nothing you add to Christ, and there's nothing you take away from Christ, and there's nothing that you do to receive Christ. It is an act of faith. So when we deal with, when we deal with the gospel, we better not say, do not touch, do not taste, do not do this. But when we deal with living out the Christian life, when we deal with manifesting the gospel, then these things are all important to us. Even the ceremonies of the church become important to those who are living out the gospel versus those who are trying to attain to it. Does that make sense? So, so important that we get that because this text can be really, really dangerous if we don't understand that truth. So let's go on. Four things. Number one is the risk, the risk of missing the mystery. The risk of missing the mystery. There is a reality from this text and many other texts that there is a real risk that people will miss the mystery of Christ. The warnings that are all throughout the New Testament are not there without a true purpose and meaning. People can miss the mystery of Christ. People who are like in this context sitting in the church pews. People who go to church regularly, people who are participating in religious things, that they can miss the mystery of Christ. In our self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, it is often easy for religious people to miss the mystery of Christ. 
The Bible tells us in Matthew 13 and verse 17, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you get to see, but they did not see it and they did not hear it. What you hear. They longed to hear. They longed to see. They longed to understand. They studied and sought out these things, but never attained to them. There's a real risk of missing the mystery of Christ. There are three things that I'd like to put, have you put underneath that if you would like to, if you're taking notes. Number one is failing of the mystery. Number two is falling short of the mystery. And number three is forsaking the mystery. And let me unpack each one of those for you br- briefly. Failing of the mystery is those who never understand the mystery. They don't often don't hear it, but they don't understand it. They don't comprehend it. People who sometimes uh, have never heard the gospel obviously aren't going to get it. But this context and the scriptural context is, is those people who, who do hear it but yet don't understand it. Or do, do, they are religious, but they don't understand. Why would there be people who are failing of the mystery? Because, number one, there are religions and churches today have, that have stopped preaching the mystery of Christ. Therefore, they are religious. They go to church and they perform church uh, duties and rituals, but they miss the mystery of Christ because it's not taught in their churches. It's not only not taught in their churches, but many churches today have become such a carnal place and a place where it is all about self-help programs that the gospel of Christ and the mystery of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ is not something that's dealt with. And therefore, any form of spiritual life, any form of spiritual truth, any form of spiritual reality is something that is completely overlooked or avoided for the sake of not being too mysterious. There are those who will fail of the mysteries of Christ. There are those who fall short of the mystery. These are those who hear the mysteries of Christ, understand them in some way, but never respond to them in saving faith. In other words, they know the mysteries of Christ. They've heard them taught, but yet they have never submitted to them. They've never surrendered what what they can see for what they can't see. They've never trusted in something that is invisible at the expense of something that is visible. There are many who today who call themselves Christians and profess Christianity who are just simply holding on to what they can see and they are often not saved. They hear the truth, but they never respond to it in saving faith. King Agrippa said, almost you persuaded me to be a Christian. He was was close, but yet not persuaded by the Apostle Paul. Hearing the truth, understanding it, but not responding to it in saving faith. These are those that are mentioned in Matthew 13, those who are like the four different soils. The soil falls, the seed falls onto certain types of soil that are not conducive for the fruitfulness of that seed. The seed is sown, it is understood, it is even enjoyed 
yet deception, the love of money, or the offense of the scripture snuffs it out and it never bears any fruit. Many today have that. They hear the word of God preach. They read the word of God. They have a, a, a level of understanding of it. Perhaps they even enjoy it for a season. But yet there is an enemy that comes and sweeps it away. There is a love of money that comes and sweeps it away. Or there is the offense of the scriptures. The fact that the scriptures convict us of our sins. And these things snuff out the fruitfulness of our seed and It doesn't bear fruit. 2 Timothy 3, verse 5 through 7 says it this way. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its very power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and and, uh, capture weak women, burdened with sin and led away with, uh, let me just, um, let me get it back up here. Led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. These are those who fall short. They might be at the door. They might be right there at the brink of salvation, but yet they never cross over. They never come to a point where they truly embrace the invisible at the expense of the visible. And that is what faith does. That is what Hebrews 11 is about. The third one is forsaking of the mystery. Those who forsake the mystery are those who have been saved by it, but yet they refuse to live by it. They have been saved by faith in Christ, that which is invisible, but they have adopted a fleshly uh, method of carrying out what God has called them to do. They're saved by a mystery, but they're not sanctified by that same mystery. Galatians 1.6 says it this way, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and have turned to a different gospel. And then chapter 3 and verse 3 says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to be made perfect by the flesh? There's a real, there's a reality to the fact that people miss this mystery. They miss the invisible. They miss the things that they cannot comprehend or understand. They miss the faith that is involved in salvation, but not only salvation. Often they miss the faith that's involved in sanctification. That is number one. Number two, in your notes, the reason for missing the mystery. The Apostle Paul gives us four reasons here in our text that we just need to grasp for a moment here, in verse, beginning in verse number eight. The Lord says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty empty deceit. The way that this text flows in the Greek is basically, see that no one takes you captive by philosophy that is deceitful. The main focus is on philosophy. This is not about the empty deceit. It is about philosophy that is empty deceit. According to the elemental, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. And then it goes on in verse number nine to describe the fullness of Christ. Paul warns the first distraction that he warns about that will take our focus off of the mystery of Christ is intellectualism. 
It is being distracted by the world's philosophies. The word intellectual here means the love of knowledge. It is called empty deception because what it is ultimately is vain sophistication. It is the world's philosophy. We have philosophers of old that were very, um, what we would say is, is they placed human intelligence as the highest power. Men like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and Nietzsche, Marx and Confucius and Voltaire and others who placed human intellect above, above truth. We have a lot of philosophers rising up today. This is almost like a resurgence, I believe, of philosophy. People placing human intellect over that which is truth. Perhaps written truth would be a better way of saying it in God's word. The Bible tells us, or not but the Bible, I'll give you a few scriptures here in a moment, but philosophy, the definition of philosophy is the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence, especially when considered as an academic discipline. It is the study of the mind, the intellect. It places the weight on our ability to comprehend that which we see. We note in the Garden of Eden that the challenge for Eve was a challenge between faith and knowledge. Satan came to her and said that the fruit, if she would eat of the fruit, she would, if she would eat, she would eat of the fruit of what? What was the name of the tree? The knowledge tree. It was the knowledge tree, wasn't it? If she would eat of the tree of knowledge, she would be like God. And it was the difference between believing God's word and trusting God and walking closely with him who is invisible and believing and trusting and, and, and walking in, in, in knowledge and intellect. When you think about all of the things in God's word that are contrary to intelligence, I mean, you won't believe creation if you're building your foundation on intellect. If you're building it on what we would call modern science. You won't believe that there was a flood that took place. You won't believe that there's any such thing as the resurrection from the dead. You won't believe a man spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish and another four guys spent uh, some time in a fiery furnace. You won't believe the Bible if you do not, if you, if you hold to what you can see touch and understand this is why the intellect for the apostle paul is is a is a challenge to faith it is a challenge to faith again as i said earlier there's nothing wrong with intellect until it challenges faith when we look at the word of god and we see in genesis chapter number one that god created the earth in six days then we should take science and do everything we can with science to, to show how it proves Genesis chapter number one, right? The study of science is not bad as long as it's meant to prove that which God said. When we take science and make it the foundation or intellect the foundation and we try to prove, we try to prove what God's, we try to prove the science by what God said, it gets, it's backwards, and it's distorting of the truth. He says, he says in the text here, 
he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophies. And this is something that the Apostle Paul deals with on a number of occasions, 2 Timothy 2.14. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does, not, which does no good, but only ruins the hearer. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know what they breed, that they breed quarrels. And what he's referring to is these intellectual debates, these conversations that are built around human, the, the human mind. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And then 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he might become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. And you think about Isaiah 55 says that our ways are not his ways, right? Our thoughts are not his thoughts. As far as the heavens are from the earth are his ways and his thoughts from our thoughts. So does that, does that, is that truth? Is it true that as far as the heavens are from the earth is God's thinking from our thinking? So should we take our thinking and then and, and, and as, as foundational and, and root our life on that? Or should we take God's thinking? And where do we get God's thinking from? We get it from his word. The only place that we get it from is his word. The the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So the first first thing that he warns us against is, is philosophy. The love of knowledge, the love of understanding, the love of intellect, the pursuit of these things. And we can see, we can, I think we can logically see how this is a, how this is a, in opposition to faith, right? Because knowledge and intellect and intelligence never tells you believe what you can't see, right? It tries to explain what you can see. So that you'll believe it, but it doesn't tell you to believe what you can't see. Intellect doesn't tell you that the whole earth was created in six days. God does. Intellect doesn't tell you that there was a man who came from heaven, took upon human form, died on the cross for our sins, and rose again the third day, and now is in heaven interceding for us. Intellect doesn't tell us that. God does. True? This is why, listen, and this is, I'm going to get ahead of myself a little bit, but this is why he follows up with who Christ is. In contrast to the intellect, see, what, what's happening is, is that it is intellect draws us away from Christ. Draws us away from the invisible. So that's the first one. Let me, let's go on in verse number, nine, uh, verse number 16 is the second, the second um, reason why we miss the miss the mystery, and it is ceremonialism. He says, let no, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festivals or new moons or Sabbath. These are the shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so the second thing is just simply ceremonialism or, or ritualism, celebrating of food and drinks, the celebrating of days and weeks of the year, um, these things are tools and methods in, 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 in 
the Jewish system and in this system that, that Paul is writing to, to bring a person closer to God. People celebrated these things. They, they placed them on a very high level. If you ate certain days and forfeited food on other days, you would become closer to God, become closer to Christ. Okay? Not only did some celebrate them, but some condemned them, condemning the eating of foods and drinks, condemning certain days of the week or year, that they would hinder your closeness to God. In the end, our closeness to God was based upon how well we performed the ceremonies and rituals. In the first section, our, our closeness to God was based upon our understanding. In the second part, our closeness to God is based upon rituals and ceremonies, right? In your own time, read Romans 14, verses 5 through 9, and it will tell you. 1 Corinthians uh, 6 through 8, or, or 4 through 8, give us the idea of these things don't matter. Number three, he goes on in verse number 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. And some versions use, instead of asceticism, they use humility there. And that's the idea of asceticism is it's a false humility. It's doing some things on the outside to um, perhaps restricting your body or um, abusing your body. They did a lot of things in the first century that uh, were... They, they thought that we will, we will become closer to God on the basis of not giving, in any, not giving anything into the flesh, okay? And we'll get closer to God on that basis. Is it, is it a good idea to discipline our flesh? The Apostle Paul said there in 1 Corinthians 9 that he, he beat his flesh down. Is that a bad thing? So he's not saying it's a bad thing here. What he, what he is saying is, if the Apostle Paul beat his flesh down to make himself closer to God, he misses the point. Who makes us close to God? Christ does. Christ, everything in Christ, Christ in you, you in the church. He makes us close to God. The third one is spiritualism. Or what we, we would call maybe false humility. Worship of angels, which is just simply a false humility. And people go through, go through um, you know, uh, there are certain religions out there that worship angels and put them up on a high pedestal, which misplaces Christ. Um, a, a number of different things, but the Apostle Paul is dealing with here is those who have become puffed up in their uh, ability to um, be super spiritual in the super spiritual world, right? Does being super spiritual make us closer to God? Does it? Is it good to be spiritual? Does being super spiritual make us closer to God? No. Who does? Christ does. And he calls this just pride, You're just being arrogant, you false humility, because you believe that you're getting closer to God on your own merits. He says this in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, you're familiar with it, I'm sure. If we speak with the tongues of men and of angels, guess what that is? It's a lofty speaker, somebody who is very spiritual. If we speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, we are like a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. True? 
worthless. Super spiritual. I can speak like an angel speaks. Worthless to God. That the fourth one is found at the latter part in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as you were still alive in this world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that, are, that perish as they are used? This is legalism. According to the human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. Are there things that we should not taste, touch, and handle? Are there? Will not tasting, touching, or handling these things make you closer to God? Who makes you closer to God? That's the, that's the focus of this text. Galatians 2.16 Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Let me say this to you. Whether you're talking about intellect, ceremonies, spiritualism, or the law, you're not talking about anything that is bad Unless you find these things as the means to gaining favor with God. All of these things have their place. But none of these things have a place when it comes to gaining favor with God. These are things that we do because we have favor with God. These are things that we, we find ourselves desiring because we are children of God. And the, the opposite of that would be trying to gain favor with God on the basis of these things. You've got to ask yourself the question, if, if my favor with God is based upon these things, what level do I have to do these things to find favor with God? How many ceremonies are called for for me to find favor with God? How much do I have to not handle, touch, or taste to find favor with God? How much intellect do I have to have to not have favor with God? How much? How spiritual do I have to be to have favor with God? The issue is your favor with God and my favor with God are on the basis of one person, and that is Christ. And so all of these things can be a distraction. Remember this, a misdirection. If I can just get you to focus on being more spiritual, if I can get you to focus on being more legalistic in your walk, if I can get you to focus on more intellect and more knowledge, if I can get you to focus on these things, see what we do is we start focusing on all of these things that cannot make us closer to God and we lose sight of the one thing that can bring us close to God, which is, which is Christ. It's like trying to grow in areas to have an intimate relationship with somebody. It's like, you know what? I'm going to read a bunch of books about my wife. So we go out and we buy all the books in the world and we read all these books and we study all these books and we have all this intellect and I'm going to discipline my body so that I never think a bad thought 
or never have anything negative towards my wife. I'm going I'm to discipline my body so that I never have a bad thought again. And I, and I go through all of that, and I'm going I'm to put all these ceremonies and rituals in my life so that my wife is the first place in my life. And I never spend any time with my wife. And I never devote energy to her. I never talk with her. I never commune with her. I never fellowship with her. I never just enjoy her because I'm spending all of my time trying to be the perfect person for her. And you know what she wants? Does she want the perfect person? You know what she wants? She wants the person. And that's what God, the devil, listen, the devil is distracting us by getting us to focus on all of these earthly things to try to, to get us to think that these things will bring favor to God. And so we focus on them and we work on them and we feel, we feel good about them, but we've not yet at all began to draw close to Christ. When you draw close to Christ, listen, when you draw close to Christ, guess what happens to all of these things? What does Matthew 6.33 say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, what you do is you focus on the relationship and everything else happens. Instead of focusing on what needs to happen for the relationship. Because the relationship is based on whom? Number three, the repercussions for missing the mystery. And I just mentioned this a little bit. I'm going to just give you a few thoughts on this and, and then close out with one last thought. The goal, the goal of the goal of these, the goal of the enemy is to distract us from Christ. It is to put our focus on earthly things, carnal things, physical things. All of the things that he mentions here in the four areas that are obstacles, all of them you can see. All of them you can touch. And that's why he says that at the end, do not touch. Do not touch what? What you can see or not see. Do not taste. Do not taste what? What you can see or not see. Do not handle. Do not handle what? What you can see or not see. What he is saying is, is the problem is, is your focus is completely on what you can see, touch, and feel. And as long as I can keep you focused on that, is what the devil says, you're no longer focused on what you cannot see, what you cannot touch, and what you cannot handle. That's what the devil wants. The good things that we can see, touch, and handle can be a distraction from what we can't see, touch, and handle. That's the goal of the devil. It is to distract us from what we can't see, touch, or feel so that we will focus on what we can see, touch, and feel. Even if it's good and spiritual. Why? Because faith is walking in what you can't see. And without faith, according to Hebrews 11, verse 6, without walking in what you can't see, it is impossible to what? Without walking in what you can't see, it is impossible, not my words, God's words, 
to please God. Impossible. You can focus on what you can see, touch, and feel your whole life. You can become the most spiritual, the most spiritually intellect. You can become the most ceremonial in your life. You can become the most disciplined, and you cannot touch and not feel and not handle, but your whole life is focused on touching, feeling, and handling what you can see, and you can miss the mystery. Because the mystery is what you can't see. The mystery is what you can't understand. The mystery is what you can't comprehend. Lastly, let me, let me just read this verse to you. In, um, let me see here. In, I believe it's in Luke 22, 31 and 32. The devil says, Jesus says to Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for your faith that it might not fail. You know what Satan wants? He wants to sift you like wheat. And he wants to take away every ounce of your faith. You can be super spiritual and have zero faith. You can be super intellectual super ceremonial and super disciplined and have zero faith because your life is built on what you can see, what you can handle, and what you can touch or taste. The resolution, lastly, the resolution for missing the mystery. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely to us, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. This is the resolution for missing the mark. It is planting your eyes on Christ. He is the founder and the perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And he gives us, it's interesting, I'm not going to go through it because of time, but if you read through the text, he gives us at the end of each one of the, of the obstacles to faith, he points us back to Christ. In the first section, he points us to Christ's supernatural redemption. He describes redemption in such a way that you cannot intellectually get it. He describes it in such a way that it has to be faith that you take this by. It makes no sense logically. So what does he do? He takes the problem and he counteracts it with whom? With Christ. That's the solution. The solution for salvation by faith and not by intellect is by making salvation non-intelligible. When Jesus says to Nicodemus, you've got to climb back in your mother's womb to be saved, Nicodemus, who was an intellect, was like, what are you talking about? And Jesus was saying to him, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. We must focus on Christ's supernatural redemption. He goes on in the second part about, about uh, ceremonies, and he says you must focus on Christ as the substance All of these ceremonies are meant to point to the invisible. They're all meant to point to Christ. 
The substance of the ceremonies is Christ. Don't be distracted from the substance. And then you must focus on number three. He says, look at Christ's church. The third part is to look at the church. See that the head is Christ and the body is all knit together and working together and functioning together. And you know that there's something invisible happening in the church. And then the last resolution is simply to recognize or focus on the fact that all of these things fail. What he says at the end is this. Take all your intellect. Take all your spiritualism. Take all your ceremonialism. And how you doing? It doesn't even, listen to me, it doesn't even help you restrain your flesh. It doesn't even help you restrain your flesh. The most spiritual, the most intellectual, the most ceremonial person in the world still falls prey to his flesh. It doesn't even help you. He says they have simply an appearance of godliness and self-made religion and asceticism and the severity of the body, but they have no value. And I just stop right there because it goes on to say they have no value in, in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. But you know what he's saying in essence? They have no value, period. And let's just use the minor issue is they don't even have a value in helping you not be a sinner. But go, step, go one step further and know that they have no value spiritually either. In the end, listen, in the end, we're meant to see Christ. And Satan is distracting us in every way that he possibly can to get us to see and believe and embrace a mystery that is invisible, that is untouchable. It's not, we're not able to taste it. It is only received by faith. And when we receive Christ by faith, we become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If you're with us this morning, you know, and you're, and you're a follower of Christ, you know that there is an attack on this. It's not an attack on your faith to save, it, to save you, but it's an attack on your faith to sustain you. It's an attack on your faith to sanctify you. We must learn to not trust in self, to not believe what we can see, touch, and feel, but to embrace what God says in his word and to know that that which is invisible is often that which is reality. If you read in your own time the book, the chapter in Hebrews chapter number 11, you will find a group of people who believed the invisible and lived like it was visible. Matter of fact, I think he says about one of them, he says that he, he believed in what was invisible as if it were visible. Paraphrase. Let me close with this verse. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 and 9. Be sober-minded and vigilant or watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your 
faith. Knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist the devil by the firmness of faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you do give this warning. It's just, it's symbolic of your love for us, your care for us, your compassion for a people that are prone to embrace the physical world, to believe that all that is that we see is reality and, and in part to then forsake that which we don't see. And we know that there is a, there is a war going on for, between the flesh and faith, between the physical and the spiritual. And we, as your people, Lord, need to be a representation of those who have embraced an invisible truth, an invisible reality, and that we live that out. Please uh, bless this um, truth, and I pray that you would help those of us who needed it to take it home and to learn from it and to grow by it. We love you. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.